Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, our guest is Oliver Morton, and we're going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects, which is the possibility of air conditioning the outdoors. Our guest today is Oliver Morton, uh, who is an editor at The Economist and the author of The Planet Remade, uh, which is about the subject of today's podcast, geoengineering. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Geoengineering is something that, uh, as a concept, may be a little new to some of our listeners. Uh, It has to do with climate change, and most of the discussion of climate change either focuses on ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, uh, so-called mitigation, uh, or adaptation, uh, building seawalls or other things to take account of the consequences of climate change. Geoengineering is, I you might consider a, a third way of responding to climate change uh, or the problems of climate change. So, what, could you just briefly describe what is geoengineering? Well, geoengineering, diff, different people define it in different ways, and that can get a little bit um, in the weeds. We may not want to go there, but um, in general, people mean by large-scale interventions in the Earth system intended to bring about specific um, results. And in climate, um, it tends to be ways to, in some way, offset some of the effects of um, carbon dioxide forced warming. And one way I think to think about it is that it's a way to decouple future climate from cumulative emissions. And there are two ways that that works. One is that you can either take carbon dioxide back out of the air faster than nature would remove it. Or you can stop energy coming into the system in the first place by reflecting some sunlight back out into space and not letting it warm up the planet in the first place. And those are, I call those carbon geoengineering and solar geoengineering. Now, some people would don't, some people would rather you didn't call um, sucking carbon out of the atmosphere geoengineering, partly because they think geoengineering has in some ways like a got bad name, partly because they think it's a, very different thing, which it is technically and in other ways from shielding the earth against sunlight. But they do both have this quite politically important similarity, this common factor, which is that they do allow you to tackle climate change independent of the amount of carbon that has been emitted to date. This is an issue that raises a lot of uh, political, philosophical uh, other issues, but I want to talk a little bit more just about how the potential technologies work before we get into all that. The carbon geoengine, uh, the carbon removal, I think is is fairly straightforward. Uh, you have different technologies that take the carbon out of the atmosphere uh, one way or the other. The solar geoengineering uh, is, how, how exactly does that work? So obviously you're doing something to, uh, ref, you know, block, heat uh, or sunlight, but what what exactly would that involve uh, well, the, from a point of view? the form of solar geoengineering that's been most widely studied, partly because it's one that's 
relatively easy to do in climate models, um, is to thicken slightly the layer of sulfate particles in the stratosphere. There's always a very, very thin haze of sulfate in the stratosphere, um, and it reflects a little sunlight. Mostly this is completely unnoticeable. It gets replenished by volcanic eruptions. Uh, after a big volcanic eruption, the layer gets much more, much thicker, and the um, and more sunlight is reflected, and we know historically that large volcanic eruptions cool the Earth. You don't want to cool the Earth in quite the way a volcanic eruption does, but the idea of adding particles to the stratosphere is the most widely discussed form of solar geoengineering. But there are others. One is to um, possibly force tiny little droplets of salt up from the surface of the sea so that they, not that they create clouds over the sea, but they take those very low, flat decks of cloud over the sea and make them somewhat brighter. If you add more nuclei to the clouds, the idea is that you'll get more water droplets and more water droplets will make a brighter cloud. So that's another way of reflecting back more sunshine. And then you can also just look at doing local things and won't have a global effect, but they could have a local effect such as just making the tops of cities, making roadways whiter, making roofs whiter. Um, which, of course, many people, for instance, in the Middle East have been doing for millennia. Um, and there's also the idea, possibly, of covering water reservoirs with reflective um, uh, coverings of some sort, which, again, doesn't um, have any effect on the global level, but it does have an effect in terms of, sort of like reducing evaporation and reducing local heating. At this point, is this technology uh, largely theoretical, or has any of this been deployed yeah. anywhere? Very, very largely theoretical. I mean, white, painting things white is not theoretical. That's something that we can actually do. But no one has put um, particles into the stratosphere to try and do this. What they've done is modeled the effect that those particles might have. Similarly, no one has yet um, really tried to brighten clouds in the way that the marine cloud brightening people would like to do. They designed and prototyped to a certain extent some hardware for that, which is quite interesting, but they haven't um, got close to actually putting it in the field. That said, I think of the difficult things about geoengineering in this way, actually doing it is not, as it were, the hardest thing. Although no one has designed aircraft to fly in the stratosphere spraying stuff out, um, no that's one... Not what, that's not what YouTube suggests. Yeah, no, we'll come on to that. Um, but <laughs> though no one has done that, no one, no one's done that. No one thinks that designing such aircraft is impossible. Um, similarly, I don't think anyone thinks that brightening clouds is is you know sort of like absolutely technologically impossible. The much bigger questions are: Who would you trust to do this? What would be the effects of doing this? What would be the effects on things other than temperature? How would you do it in a just way? Um, those sorts of things. No, you are. You said about uh, that's not what you gave you going on YouTube. Yes, there is a community of people, or rather, there are a large number of people who believe um, that the government or a government, some governments, spray um, noxious chemicals out of existing aircraft. Um, uh, this often known as chemtrails. There's no evidence, no credible evidence, that this actually happens. Um, and the idea that there's a conspiracy that involves basically almost everyone who works in an airline anywhere in the world seems beyond far-fetched. But it's, def <laughs> it's definitely true that there are people who uh, worry about this and who believe that it is in some ways linked to geoengineering. But 
people who are actually thinking about geoengineering get, you know, a little upset about this, particularly because the discourse can become quite unpleasant and, in fact, can lead to sort of like criminal threats and things like that. Yeah. And, and as I understand it, if you were to do geoengineering, the planes would have to be high enough up that you would not be seeing them leaving trails. If you sky. wanted, yes, absolutely. If you wanted yeah. to, I mean, there is one thing you should bear in mind, slightly more complicated. I mean, it's quite possible that the first people to try doing geoengineering may not be very good at it. But leaving that aside, if you wanted to do it the way that scientists talk about doing it when they model it, yes, you'll be spraying, you might be spraying an invisible gas that later formed particles out, or you might just be distributing pilot particles. But you'll be doing it at something around 20 to 22 kilometers. That's a lot higher than civil aircraft. And it wouldn't look like contrails, which is what basically the people who talk about chemtrails are identifying condensation trails behind existing passenger jets. Yeah. Well, I, I know you said sort of to leave aside the idea that uh, the, the people first doing geoengineering might not be good at it, but let's talk about that for just a moment. Is there a risk that by tinkering with Mother Nature that we could actually make matters worse and and possibly create unintended consequences? Well, the, uh, the various things to, to, to look at there. We that's a very difficult term here. Not clear who would do this. Mm-hmm. Um, it is clear that um, there are, you could apply geoengineering stupidly, or it appears moderately smartly. If you do basically the sort of thing I've been talking about, particles in the stratosphere, if you do it heavy-handedly, um, you almost certainly will bring down the temperature, but you will also um, have possibly more effect than you would like on rainfall so warming the planet increases rainfall um because it makes the air moister cooling the planet um has a slightly stronger drying effect than warming the planet through carbon dioxide and so you slightly dry out the planet or you might try if you did it wrong you dry the planet wrong, but you dry out the planet compared to what it would be with the warming not necessarily all that much compared to what it actually is now and then you have secondary effects on evaporation and on plant transpiration it gets very complicated but i think the idea the evidence to date on the basis of models is not that you can't do it badly fairly clear that you could do it badly but it appears that you could do it in ways that are i think actually on in a sort of like empirical way more benign than people would not would have expected certainly than people expected when they first started studying this about 10 years ago it looks like there are ways that you could really significantly slow warming and at the same time not have any drastic climate effect drastic negative climate effects on anyone um, and the best, and in some places, you'll have a real benefit, a, a very significant benefit. So at the moment, the models look like this works. But as I say, the difficulty here is the politics and in various different ways, the relationship people wish to think themselves having with nature. So I, and I suppose the, you know, there's various issues that people bring up with this technology. The, the big advantage, at least with solar geoengineering that people mention is uh, the cost, it would be uh, relatively cheap. So it would be either uh, either billed as being a, a cheap alternative to emissions reductions or as a way to create extra time for us to reduce emissions and avoid the consequences of warming because we're not we're not reducing emissions uh, quickly enough. 
there's no one active in this field who thinks for a moment that solar geoengineering is an alternative to emissions reduction. Emissions reduction is, you know, it's the beginning of everything, both in terms of getting yourself in a long, in, onto a trajectory where in the long term you don't need to be doing geoengineering, in terms of providing things geoengineering goes wrong, in terms it, it's undeniably the right thing to do. Geoengineering is, um, at best, um, some sort of supplement to emissions reduction. I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, it, you can see it in buying time, though that's a little bit worrying because it suggests that you're going to just sort of like wait for the emissions reduction and then that suggests that, you know, you're not going to do it. Um, I think another way of looking at it is peak shaving. If you look at the um, suggestions for what the warming profile might be if the world follows um, a sort of like slow, moderate, I mean, faster than one would otherwise thought, but too slow for two degrees or 1.5 degrees um, emissions reduction profile, you could shave the top off the temperature rise um, with some geoengineering. That's uh, that, that's one way of looking at it. Or another way you might do it would be doing enough to, you might say, you know, what we'll do to, ma to maintain, as it were, the incentives for emissions reduction, but you'll do enough geoengineering simply to halve the warming increase that you would get just from emissions over a given time. Those are all things that have been discussed, again, very much sort of like head games rather than practical politics. Yeah. So, and you mentioned, you sort of alluded to one common argument that you hear against even discussing this topic, which is, you know, sometimes framed in terms of moral hazard, which is if we know that this option is out there, where we could avoid the consequences of it, of emitting, you know, that's going to uh, create an incentive for people to not reduce emissions. Yeah, uh, that, yeah. That is, I mean, this idea of, um, yeah, it's been discussed as moral hazard. They, there are other ways of thinking about it. Um, uh, inhibiting reductions is, a, is, is another way of seeing it. It's a real issue. I mean, but there, this is one of the places where it becomes useful to remember that carbon dioxide reduction technologies are another form of geoengineering. There you are seeing the moral hazard playing out right now because without technologies for taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, none of these scenarios for 1.5 or indeed basically for 2 degrees look remotely plausible. And so they all build in some level of carbon dioxide reduction um, in the second half of this century, sometimes by really sort of like eye-watering amounts. There, you see the moral hazard very clearly because you're basic. You really are looking at these these curves that go up and then down and go below the line into negative emissions and then come back up. And no one knows how to do carbon dioxide removal on the sort of scale necessary for that. But because it's an idea, because it's something people talk about it, you're able to sort of like, as it were, push relax your emissions reduction in order to make it up later. I think solar geoengineering actually has slightly less of that problem because mm -hmm. solar geoengineering is kind of weirder and stranger and a bit more scary than just sort of like the promise that someday you'll tidy up the carbon mess that you've made. And that I think probably focuses people's minds to some extent. Um, the other thing is 
uh, solar geoengineering, the sort of stratospheric stuff I was talking about, doesn't require that everyone in the world be absolutely okay with it. It merely requires that no one actively try to stop it. I, I like to ask the really stupid questions sometimes on this program. If, you know, people, people sometimes talk about the danger of geoengineering is people will say, well, since we can just, you know, uh, do geoengineering to keep the earth from getting warmer, uh, that's, gonna, that's going to undercut the drive to reduce emissions, right? And so the stupid question is, well, why would that be a bad thing? If we, can, if we have this technology which would let us uh, continuing, continue to emit all we want, and keep keep the earth from getting warmer you know and it's cheaper uh, why why wouldn't we do that not remotely a stupid question um but the answer is that there are there are good reasons one is that if you keep admit, uh, emitting carbon dioxide willy-nilly um you also run into problem of ocean acidification which is something that solar geoengineering does almost nothing to counter so you will still be souring the sea um regardless and you want to not do that the other thing is goes back to those questions I was talking about a little while ago, that um, cooling the planet by not letting sunlight into it does not have the same have an exactly opposite effect on the structure of the atmosphere to warming the planet with carbon dioxide. They're similar, they're similar in terms of maybe your surface temperature, but they're not the same. And the more divergent they become. Um, the more those um, differences are going to come back and bite you. So um, very, very roughly, and um, it's just to give you sort of like a sense, uh, I think a degree, a degree Celsius of um, solar geoengineering doesn't currently look as though it would have any horrible outcomes. Doesn't currently look as if it would have any horrible outcomes. I'm not saying it would necessarily have no nasty side effects. But if you imagine a world that's, say, on a carbon dioxide course for being five degrees warmer um, than it is today and trying to take four degrees off with geoengineering, then you look at an atmosphere which is very differently structured, very strong changes in the hydrological cycle, and that's the sort of thing you really want to avoid. And then the third point, after the oceans and the structure of the atmosphere, is that ideally you want to get the planet's atmosphere to a, the climate to a place where you don't have to mess around with it. And the way to have a climate that you're not messing around with is to have a climate that you're not putting any more greenhouse gases into it. And it's not as though anyone believes that it's technologically impossible to power the world without burning fossil fuels. It's just difficult when at the moment 80% of the energy used does come from fossil fuels. Um, and the alternatives are not available at scale to just simply flick a switch. So there's no reason why people should be using fossil fuels in 150 years or 100 years. 50 years, though, becomes a little bit more difficult. So for all those reasons, getting, rid of, getting fossil fuels out of the mix is absolutely the right long-term goal. Geoengineering might be able to, make, to somewhat lessen the risks as you do that with all deliberate haste. Okay, uh, so now let's talk a little bit about the geopolitical stuff because, you know, with a lot of the issues with climate change, uh, I think one of the problems that we face is that the, we don't have a world government, right? 
Uh, and I'm I'm a conservative. I actually don't want to have a world government. I think that would be bad for a lot of reasons. But it also means that since we have 200 different nations, each of them kind of pursuing their own self-interest, uh, you have an uh, issue. Well, with the emissions of pro- reduction is sort of an issue of, well, it's somebody else's problem. Someone else can reduce their emissions. Uh, we're going to do what's good for us. And same, similarly with geoengineering, as you mentioned, not all countries might have the same view about what the ideal temperature is and uh, how much of uh, the side effects are worth foregoing a certain amount of warming from. Uh, and so you said w- what was necessary for uh, geoengineering w- to work was not for everyone. You didn't need everyone to agree, but no one had to be willing to stop it. Do you, do you see that as a potential risk from geoengineering is that Russia and China, India, the United States might have very different views about how that technology should be deployed and um, might come into conflict over that? Yeah, there's definitely that risk. Though, again, they might come into conflict about the climate that exists without that sort of deployment. But yeah, there's a difference between, as it were, quasi-passively, I mean, quasi, because, you know, Fossil fuels don't just jump out of the uh, out of the ground and burn themselves. Someone has to do it. Um, but there's a sense in which burning fossil fuels is, you know, industrially, technologically, politically normalized, whereas deliberately trying to change the energy balance of the planet isn't. Um, and so they are. They 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 would feel very different. Um, but as I say, the question would be: What are you willing to put up with? And people do put up with things um, in the in this world, and nations do put up with other nations doing things that they don't particularly like. Um, the and one of the advantages, or one of the possibilities, I think advantages would be too strong. One of the possibilities of this sort of thing is that it also provides you with another set of levers for the vital discru- discussions on emissions reduction. Because you talked about the um, the moral hazard argument about people doing less reduction um, with uh, it, if they thought there was going to be geoengineering. There is also uh, a plausible argument, and even some very, very faint um, empirical evidence, that people might do more about emissions in a world where someone else was thinking about geoengineering. Now, that's not something that I'd necessarily um, take to the bank, and it's not necessarily something that one would want, because you don't really want people um, doing uh, doing their emissions reduction because they're afraid of what some other nation will do, because they might then find some other way to strike back at that nation. But it's worth bearing in mind that it's a very different um, dynamic. There's a nice way of thinking about it that um, uh, Marty Weitzman uh, and uh, my friend Gernot Wagner at Harvard um, uh, talk about quite a lot, which is the problem of the free driver. In In carbon dioxide emissions reduction, you have a free rider problem, that if everyone else is reducing, then you don't have to classic free rider problem. In solar geoengineering, you have a free driver problem, which is that everyone could um, do solar geoengineering. So the amount of solar geoengineering you get, all other things being equal, is the most that any individual person, any individual player, and this is like a game theory idea, any individual player wants is what you get. Because you can't immediately undo someone's geoengineering, but you could add to it. And so you basically get the 
highest level of geoengineering that everyone's willing to tolerate. And that's something that I think is actually quite worrying because the ways in which people might um, communicate their lack of tolerance, um, you know, could involve weapons. Right. And I suppose it's also possible that you could have some sort of uh, uh, overshoot, uh, either in the sense that the country that prefers the coldest world is going it's, it's to be a colder world than uh, would be optimal for the, for the whole world. But also, you know, I- is it possible that uh, through miscalculation or whatever, uh, we could end up making things a lot colder than we wanted? That is possible. Um, I think that it's one of the reasons why I think that it would be very unwise um, to go in hard with geoengineering from the get-go. It's one of the reasons why there's a way of talking about geoengineering, which I find particularly worrying, which is the idea that, oh, we, we would use it or someone would use it if it got really bad, if there was a crisis, if there was a catastrophe. Um, and one of the things is that it's not clear how you would define that, and that gets you into a sort of like a whole uh, level of political theory about who gets to define what's the exception. But the other thing is if the world is already off balance in some way and you have to go in with a lot of geoengineering to try and sort it out very quickly, that's exactly the sort of place where the effects might be strongly nonlinear and you might really screw stuff up. So I would much rather see geoengineering, if it were to be attempted at all, if a, if a just and equitable world system could, not a whole world system, but if there were a just and equitable, plausible way of doing it, I would much rather see it started weekly under, as it were, to the extent that there are any normal climate circumstances, but under something a bit business as usually, rather than whacked on heavily when it seems like an emergency. And that, I think, goes goes to your question. If you start it off slowly, and then you're very unlikely to see bad side effects. The other thing is, and this is, again, like everything with geoengineering, this sword has two edges, but it's very easy to stop geoengineering. You just stop geoengineering. The particles stay in the atmosphere only for, well, it depends on what sort of particles you use, but certainly they, they'll be back down within a couple of years. So it's not like uh, greenhouse gases, which can stay in the atmosphere for hundreds. And I would say, that's a plus and a minus. It means that you can actually have a climatic effect quite quickly. It also means that you can change the amount of climatic effect you have quite quickly. I want to ask sort of a a more general question. A couple of things happened recently. There was a a new report by the IPCC that uh, apparently suggested that the only way to fight... uh, uh, climate change is to dismantle capitalism, um, but also um, the uh, Nobel Prize was just awarded uh, to uh, Paul Romer and William Nordhaus, and it appears that their work, the, uh, the, for which they won the Nobel Prize, was on sustainable growth, and it was, uh, I think the premise essentially is the idea that sustainable growth could, could happen through expanding knowledge and expanding innovation. Do you have any comments on that? Are you optimistic that within a capitalistic free free market society, that uh, society can really uh, take on climate change? Oh, uh, let me say, I think I think that it's I think it can plausibly be asserted that it can. But just going back on a few of the things um, that you said, um, 
I don't think the IPCC would characterize um, its special report on 1.5 as requiring the um, dismantlement of capitalism. Um, I do think that the amount of direct control over um, resources and allocation that's needed to follow a hard 1.5 um, framework is very hard to, to um, very hard to imagine under sort of like current political economy. I mean, I think it would require a level of um, governmental um, intrusion into economic activity that many people in the free market world would be extremely uncomfortable with. Um, I don't think it has to, but I think that's the, that's, that's the way we're about. But also, I don't think that's going to happen. I think the free market right. world is for good or Ill, going to be stronger about it than that. That's one of the reasons why I chose to write a book that examined geoengineering. Um, the thing about the Nordhausen run stuff, very, very interesting. Nordhausen was brilliant in showing the benefits of dealing with climate change in the marginally most efficient way. I think the problem with that is it tends towards, it tends towards a sort of like cost benefit analysis, which is a sort of thing that works really well with environmental questions where you have a large validated body of facts to work from. So, you know, if there's something like, you know, big bridge building, I know I've built a lot of bridges. I haven't built a lot of bridges, but I have, as a notion, have built a lot of bridges. I can work out the costs and benefits with reasonable accuracy, especially because of the um, very unquantifiable um, tail risks involved in climate change, we do not know how to fully account for the risk. There are these thick tails of risk. We also don't have good ways of understanding, you know, comes a moral question about how you um, assess risk for people in future generations. All these issues mean that it's not something that I think is very well dealt with by sort of like just choosing the most efficient way. You probably do have to go further than that. And so I think in terms of in terms of Nobel Prize winners on geoengineering, it's interesting that Tom Schelling actually did do some work on it, and which I think sort of like still rather stands up. You know, this is a different way of playing the game, and it's one that if the stakes get high, it's quite likely that people might pursue. And that's why we need to think about it, because either if you want a world with geoengineering or if you want to explore the possibility of how that world might be made just and safe or if you want to oppose that world a, a better knowledge base and a better assessment of the knowledge base could be of help uh, it's not in itself going to be enough this is not something that you can decide i mean as i was saying about cost and benefits this is not something that you're going to be able to find out all the facts about and then make decisions about but when it comes down to it Nothing's really like that in the climate world. But you can start looking at how you might see this as being a better or worse way of doing geoengineering. And that you can have a debate on that you can have a debate about how to go forward that includes geoengineering. And that's the debate I think that the IPCC very markedly fails to have. I mean it's it has some stuff on carbon geoengineering, but it has really almost nothing on solar geoengineering. Yeah, uh, I wanted to ask about that, uh, get your perspective on that. Why do you think that the IPCC was so hesitant to uh, consider solo, solar ge geoengineering? Uh, and do you think that that's something that, that kind of needs to change, not only with them, but, but in the discussion going forward? Well, 
uh, to answer the second part of that first, yeah, I would like that to change. That's why I wrote the book. Um, I think that it would be very helpful for that to change. Um, why did the IPCC not do it? Um, there are a number of reasons. They weren't exactly asked to do it. The, the IPCC special report on 1.5 um, is a response to a specific charge given to the IPCC by the Paris um, uh, Climate uh, Summit at the same time that it created the Paris Climate Agreement. And it specifically talked about emissions pathways um, and effects of 1.5. It didn't talk about looking at all possible ways of reaching 1.5. And so given that brief, which may have been, for all I know, been written with the express idea of removing consideration of solar geoengineering, the scenarios that the IPCC report examines um, all attempt to reach 1.5 purely through um, emissions reduction and carbon dioxide removal from the atmosphere. They don't have, and this is also partly because of the, the structure of the tools, the integrated assessment models um, that they use to make those sorts of pathways and to study those sort of pathways, really don't have a useful way of studying geoengineering because it, the, because they work, they're, they're basically fixed to work on ideas about carbon dioxide concentrations. I think there's also a more general thing though, which is uh, most climate scientists think that the right way of tackling um, climate change is through emissions reduction and adaptation, and I think they're quite right, and they think that that's it. And there is a certain amount, I don't think this is true of everyone um, in the business, but there is a certain amount, I think, among some people of what you might call choice editing. Um, just let's just not mention it, and then, you know, it doesn't need to happen. And some people, I think, may be actively pursuing that agenda, but for everyone else, there's a sort of like second rule, like someone's calling it Morton's Law, which is basically no one ever gets into trouble for not talking about geoengineering. <laughs> you, are never, you are never going to sort of have someone say, oh, but what, you're never going to have someone that you respect as a professional climate science st scientist stand up at the back of the hall and say, what about geoengineering? So since it's, it's very easy not to talk about, there are perceived to be costs, possibly costs in career terms for young researchers, to talking about it in front of at least some of their older colleagues, it's a very easy thing to not talk about. And so people talk about it, I think, less than they should. Last question, just on a lighter note. This is something that we ask of a lot of our guests. Do you have a, a favorite environmentally themed movie or disaster movie? Uh, doesn't have to be specifically about climate. Oh, um, well, there's one in the future. Uh, I would be I'm very much looking forward to Denis Villeneuve's um, film of Dune. Um, I mm. think because Dune is, you know, a key piece of science fiction. Although the planet Arrakis um, is not remotely um, environmentally believable, it did make people think about the whole idea of planets and changing planets. Um, and I love that. Um, I Actually, um, while prefacing this by saying um, I don't for a moment think that it's remotely something that could happen, um, I kind of like Snowpiercer, actually. <laughs> it's a Korean movie about um, a world where geoengineering has gone wrong and the whole world is a terrible ice age and there's a train which goes round and round the world endlessly with a, uh, with a class structure, um, uh, 
that mirrors the train itself with the poorest people at the back and the richest people at the front and um, some completely not so performances. I think it's kind of fun, but I don't think geoengineering is going to bring about the world of Snowpiercer. <laughs> yes, uh, for, for, if for no other reason that it would uh, require a long-distance high-speed rail line. <laughs> yeah, know. obviously, so, so it would only just be the rest of the world, right? Not America. <laughs> <laughs> American exceptionalism strikes again. Right, yeah. Oliver, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks very much. It was really nice talking to you guys.